Hello, 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 guys. Welcome back. I'm so excited because I am not alone today. Not because I have a guest. Well, we do have my first ever listener guest, but that'll be at the end. I'm alone recording, but I'm not alone recording because India's here. Thank fucking God she was away. And it was so stressful to just like talk at nothing. And now she's here. So I feel a lot better. But welcome back to another episode. I'm so excited for this week's episode. I think it's going to be great. We're going to talk about coping mechanisms. And then I have my first listener dial in and it's all exciting. But obviously, we're going to start with updates. And I just have to say, it is Wednesday, July 13th. And what the fuck are people on? this week because I cannot tell you like several brands have emailed me being like we'd love to work with you and I'm like we just what are you talking about like we're working together or like people are just like pulling wool over each other's eyes like the energy of this week has felt so fucking weird and I don't know if it's because tonight's a full moon and if you didn't know that you should definitely prepare moon water all you have to do is write yourself a little manifestation note and put it underneath a cup of water on your windowsill facing the moon then tomorrow morning you're going to drink a cup of water and think about your manifestations and lock them in so definitely do that I don't know if that's why people are on some fucking weird bullshit right now but like I'm sitting here like people are going crazy and I'm I don't get it like I'm reading my emails being like are people like is everyone confused like and this is like not just one person like several people have been just kind of cracked out this week probably myself included anyway though I wanted to start with some updates and the first one is another cracked out situation that we need to talk about Fanny Bryce and Funny Girl and Leah Michelle. Now, I made a TikTok about this this morning that didn't do that well because I don't think people care about the nitty gritty that much. So I'm not going to go that deep into the nitty gritty. But like, for those of you who don't know, essentially, here's the over under, right? Beanie Feldstein, we love her to death. She gets cast as Fanny Bryce in the first ever Broadway revival of Funny Girl. If you don't know, now you know. Barbara Streisand originated the role. Fucking Broadway legend, right? Big shoes to fill. A lot of people say it was never revived before because nobody could fill Barbara's shoes. So Beanie gets cast, whatever. It opens to absolutely terrible reviews. It's handled very poorly by the production staff. She gets pretty mercilessly bullied and destroyed. And on top of that, they're praising her understudy. And it's just like a terrible look. Now it has since come out from this article in the Daily Beast that the producers were like, we need to get Beanie out of here. This is like terrible. The show wasn't selling seats. Frankly, I saw the show and I thought Beanie did a wonderful job. Is she Barbara Streisand? No. But I I think personally that she is charming and funny and delightful. She's been on Broadway before. I loved her on Broadway before. And the treatment of her is not justified, no matter how you throw it. There's a difference between being like, you know, critically, I don't think that she really carried it vocally and being like, fuck you. Like, those are two different things, right? So... The rumor mill since day one has been like Leah Michelle, Leah Michelle, Leah Michelle, Leah Michelle due to Glee stuff. If you don't know, Leah Michelle, I literally feel like I've been so impassioned about this. Like I'm thrilled to be talking about it in this podcast. But if you don't know, Leah Michelle, long history of mistreatment allegations, racist allegations, like bullying allegations, being awful to work with, diva, unquote, diva. Um, there's a CBS article that you can read about all of that. And so from the get, I, I think that the reason they didn't hire Leah Michelle to open the show is number one. One of the rumors is that they didn't want her to be eligible for the Tonys because of the allegations. The second one is they thought if they used her as the replacement and not as the first, um, you know, person to play the role in the revival, they would avoid some of the inevitable backlash that they knew they were going to face casting her. But my question is, if you if you knew you were going to cast someone problematic, eventually, if you knew you were going to go down that line, like give or take five fucking minutes from opening, 
why didn't you just get it over with in the beginning? Because now you harmed someone else and that person being Beanie Feldstein. That is like my genuine question about the whole thing. Because when I reflect on this, I'm like, no, for sure. Leah Michelle can sing. She's also very, very problematic. Problematic has never stopped Broadway before. Is that okay? Absolutely not. But my thought process here is like, why did you have to set Beanie up for failure and drag her into this and create lifelong, probably discomfort, anxiety, potential trauma from being bullied and harassed as she was playing the role? Why did you have to do that to her if you knew you were going to cast Leah Michelle? And secondly, anybody that they cast that wasn't Leah Michelle was going to be compared to Leah Michelle because everybody thought that Leah Michelle would be Fanny Bryce. So I kind of just think the whole thing was unfair and a fuck up. And in that Daily Beast article, the producers do acknowledge that they mistreated Beanie. I I really think that that they owe her a genuine apology and I don't really know what's next for the show. That being said, that's what's going on. That's my take on it. I think it's disappointing that Leah Michelle has been cast in the role because of the allegations and because of the past, but I'm not surprised because it's Broadway and that shouldn't be an excuse, but like if you guys don't know anything about Broadway, it's a fucked up industry. Like maybe like most industries, it's very male run. It's very white male run. Um, and they tend to get involved in a lot of shit like this, which is really disappointing. So that's my take on it. I'm just wondering why they didn't do it from the start if they were going to do it now. But if you've been on Broadway Twitter in the last like 72 hours, you've probably been entertained and scared because I know I'm both of those things. But in the vein of Broadway, last week I went to Broadway Con. If you don't know what that is, it's like a Broadway convention. And it was really nice. I was a VIP there making content for them. I work with Yes Broadway. Um, I was supposed to go to Philly and I got my dates confused and I had already committed to being at Broadway Con and I had to be there. So I didn't go to Philly, but it looked like so much fun. I love jazz, Carly, Hallie, and Bran with all my heart. I was so disappointed I couldn't be there. Um, maybe I would have brought the energy down as the mom friend was my one thing. I was like, maybe they were better off because I'm a little bit lame in comparison to their like hot feralness that I wish I could encapsulate, but sometimes I just can't. Um, but I'm hoping Bram will come here and then we can remake all of the memories. And I made Jazz tell me everything that happened when I went out to dinner with her the other night because I was like FOMO, but it really looked like they had the best time. Um, and I think, you know, it's really nice when you can live a life with content creators that you met online offline. And I actually wanted to touch on that a little bit because I think like something that's really special about this podcasting space for me is that it's a it's an ability that as I learn, I can like share that with you guys. And a lot of people will be like, well, I go back to your past episodes. It's super comforting to see like how far you've come from like your first episode to now and like even just learning and growing and like changing opinions. Like I have, the, I have the, hold the genuine belief that like we're lifelong learners. I know I am. And like as I'm learning things and like changing my opinions or like shifting my stance on things as I change, it's really nice to be able to be open and honest with you guys about that. Um, just recently I've like had a bit of a realization that like my main priorities are my personal relationships and like my life outside of social media and my life offline, but I prioritize my life online a bit more or I try to make them the same thing when they're just not the same thing. And it's a bit difficult to kind of try to explain to you guys like what that means to me, but essentially like you guys don't see like the time I spend with like my family, friends, boyfriend, etc. when I'm not on my phone because like I have a wine night with my girlfriend tonight and I won't be on my phone unless like something super fucking hilarious happens and I want to like 
like, you know, whatever. Or sometimes we'll all sit around and like do the asks together because it's like fun. But um, or like whenever I spend the night over at my boyfriend's, I'm not on my phone. We like watch TV, we do other things like nobody sees that part of my life. But I don't really want those parts of my life to be moments. I want it to be like a bit more of a long term experience for me. And um, a lot of people noticed that I was maybe posting a little bit less about like certain people in my life, my boyfriend, my close friends. And I said this on my Instagram story, but I'm just going to reiterate it here. You know, like I've made the decision to kind of keep some of those relationships personal, not because anything's going wrong, but because things are going really well. And in order to protect those relationships and frankly, also those people who never asked to be in the public eye, it just makes the most sense to take it offline. And I think, you know, as I was rising up and doing social media, it was fun and we were fucking around and having a good time and it was a hobby. And then all of a sudden it became incredibly real. And these people were like, wait, I didn't ask for this or like, whoa, like I think I feel differently about being a part of this than I once did, which is totally normal because they deserve to change their opinions as I've changed mine. And because those relationships matter more to me than social media does, uh, like if I'm being honest, obviously like my close friends and family matter the most to me in the world. I just want to be able to prioritize them and protect them and protect my relationships to them. So specifically, if you don't see as much content about my relationship, romantic relationship specifically, I don't want you to be worried. Like if I was single, you guys would know. I would talk about it. I'm not. Um, I'm very, very happy and we're in a very good place. And I think right now it just makes the most sense if we kind of keep that stuff personal. And I think that's going to be a really good choice for me. And it's going to help me to balance these two parts a bit more, especially as I head toward author book publishing territory and, you know, start focusing on that. That. Update on that. We're halfway done with the first draft of the book, and I'm very excited. And that's kind of all I can say right now. But things are moving. My due date is officially well, by the time you're listening to this, my due date is I fucking sound like I'm pregnant. <laughs> my due date, my deadline. I don't know. Um, my first draft is due on October 15th. So that's going to be approximately three months from when you guys are listening to this episode. So that's that update. Um, last night I was home. I said goodbye to my brother. He's moving to Seattle. If anybody has recs for Seattle things, things you like to do in Seattle, I've never been. But I'll definitely be over on the West Coast more often now that my brother just moved there. Please hit me up with those. Um, and then in terms of like my upcoming travel, I'm going to the Poconos at the end of August for my birthday, little birthday trip. My birthday is July 22nd, but we're pushing this back because I have a lot of fucking stuff coming up. Um, I'll be in Texas the first week of, I don't know when, but I'll be there. I'm coming. I'll be in Chicago um, in the middle of a week in August. Randomly, I booked a trip for my birthday to see Allie. And then I'll be in Boston helping move Jake in. And again, Boston Rex are highly encouraged. Also, we're going to want to do a meetup in Boston so Jake can make some new friends. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for that kind of stuff. And I think that's pretty much it. Oh, and then we actually just booked a trip to San Francisco and Napa. Um, I'm tagging along on a little work trip and then we're going to do Napa Valley. I've never been to San Francisco. I know you're excited. Indiana's from there. And so I'm really excited, but that's going to be in November. So we have time to get there, but I'll be back on the West Coast soon. Um, then other than that, the only real thing that I have uh, update wise that isn't a part of this week's episode is that my birthday is next Friday. So this actually won't be the ep- I'll have a birthday episode that's going to come out on my birthday. And I think I'm going to do an AMA. I'm going to answer 24 questions for 24 years. I'm not really like feeling in the birthday mood, honestly, like I've been really overwhelmed and like 
I think I've been doing a lot better. Remember last week when I was like, I feel great. Then there was like dips. There was like plateaus and shit because that happens. And now I'm like back on the up and up. Like I feel really good still. But you know, like I always say like recovery isn't a linear thing. And not that I'm recovering from anything. But you guys know that I was in like a weird mental space. Um, So I have felt like kind of like not planning anything. But I'm going to do a dinner with my friends. And I'm going to see my family. And that's kind of it. So those are the updates. I've also been watching Only Murders in the Building. I told you guys that I am on season four of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I know I'm behind. She just got nominated for an Emmy and I'm watching it with that in mind now, which is really exciting. Also, if you haven't watched the video of Sydney Sweeney finding out she got nominated for two Emmys, it's really fucking cute and I highly recommend it. Okay. Now, This week, we're going to talk about coping mechanisms. I think it goes hand in hand with last week's episode. Last week's episode was about loneliness and grappling with loneliness and being and being lonely and and what that means. And this week's episode is about coping mechanisms or rather two weeks ago. That episode was about loneliness. Last week was about dating apps. But um, I've been thinking a lot about this because when I was thinking about the loneliness episode, you know, there was a lot of information about feeling lonely and feeling sad and feeling anxious and feeling depressed. But I didn't really talk about like the coping mechanisms that I use and like my journey with coping mechanisms specifically. Now, before we get into like the nitty gritty, I do want to say I just want to give a full disclosure. I'm not a doctor i'm not a therapist if you are having really bad thoughts if you are struggling please go ask for help it's so important better help psychology today all the good stuff bump me if you need help with finding an outlet for therapy or finding a way to ask for help um i'm willing to help with that but i just want to remind everybody that i am just a person who's experienced these things and wants to share that with you um and secondly the episode does contain discussions of binge eating disorder, anxiety, my touch on depression, and I just want to make sure that there's a trigger warning in place in case you needed it. Okay, without further ado, let's get into it. So you guys know how I like to do this. I like to tell my story first, and then after I tell my story, I kind of like to, you know, give leverage on what I learned from that. Um, I think, you know, when I went to college, so I went to college in 2016, I had the most like privileged upbringing I like was raised in this very very insulated like lovely community with not a lot of struggle in my life which is something that I'm very willing and able to acknowledge and I think when I got to college was the first time I felt like genuinely depressed and genuinely lonely I got there when I was a freshman and my life was really fucking easy before if I'm being honest and I'm really I'm gonna always admit that to you guys like obviously nothing is like easy obviously there were hard days and like I had a sick parent and I had a lot of struggles with my family but it was you know and you can drown in an ocean and you can drown in a puddle so I'm not gonna minimize my own struggles but my own struggles were really nothing comparatively to what other people might have been going through so when I got to college it was like the first time in my life that I truly felt depressed and uncomfortable you know I kind of had a bit of a breakdown where I was like I don't know who I am I was very insecure and not confident. I was sort of like grasping at joining things just to join them. Example being sorority life. Um, And then I went through a breakup. So I... I think I deleted. So I took down some of my old episodes um, because I just wasn't really happy with the quality of them. And one of them went through my relationship history, which maybe we should do another episode on that so you guys are aware. But I went through an awful breakup when I was a freshman in college. So I got to school and on the first day of class, I met this guy and he was funny and cool and charismatic and he like started flirting with me. He was older than me. And we started dating on October 4th. I'll literally never forget it. And then on December like 19th, he ended it. It was like a very quick pattern passionate two months but it was definitely like the first heartbreak of my life and it was really extra bad and extra 
extra problematic because I had put all of my eggs into his basket, which is something I will acknowledge. You know, I got to college and I was like, well, I have a boyfriend now. I don't need friends. I don't need fucking activities. I don't need to do well in my classes. All of that's not true. And looking back, I really wish I could have changed the course of this, but this was a lesson I had to learn. And I go through this awful breakup. He literally like, there were so many signs he was going to end it. And I just was too naive to see them. He like, asked me to meet him in this parking lot of a church and I remember it was snowing and I met him and I was so nervous because I knew it was coming and he ended it and I remember walking away and going to a Starbucks and just sobbing and then after that I had a pretty tumultuous probably like worst most depressed I've ever been time in my life my second semester of college and I wasn't going to my classes I wasn't getting out of bed I was going I was partying a lot um, and I was really using unhealthy coping mechanisms I think you know there are two camps of people. Some people are anxious eaters. So when they get anxious, they want to use food as a coping mechanism. Some people don't eat when they get anxious and sad. My mom is definitely the latter one. Like when she had a very, very tough loss in her life and she really struggled to eat. And it was like something that we had to focus on, like helping her. And for me, it really depends. I'm a mixed bag. If I'm sad, I'm an eater. Like if I'm going through a breakup, I'm like, fuck it up. And you know what? Yes. And we're going to get into the fact that your quote unhealthy coping mechanisms could also be healthy coping mechanisms. Because for me now, going out and getting ice cream is a healthy coping mechanism. But what I was doing then in regard to food wasn't. Um, If I'm anxious, I can't eat. So if I'm having a panic attack, I like the only way I can describe it is that when I eat something, it won't taste like anything. Does that make sense to you guys? I wish that I had like a feedback room. I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. It just like won't taste like anything and I'll have to like force feed myself when I'm anxious. Um, but basically I was just lying in bed eating and binge shopping for this entire second semester of college. I was buying so much shit I didn't need and in tandem with the fact that I was gaining weight because I was overeating a lot and was developing binge eating disorder. I was shopping for more clothes, which is fine because you should always buy clothes that fit you. And I and I needed to do that, but it was like at a level that was excessive with the amount of things that I was purchasing and how it was stacking up um, and how broke I was going because I had saved so much money for college and then fucking spent all of it literally all of it. And I had to work and bartend every single day for my whole summer. I'm not even kidding. And that's another story for another time. (laughs) But I was just like lying in bed and I would like eat Nutella by the jar. That was like my fix. Nutella and peanut butter by the jar. And when I'm saying by the jar, I'm I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) Like I'm a notorious exaggerator. I mean, I would eat an entire jar of Nutella. Not to get health conscious on you, but do you know how many grams of sugar is in that? Like that's fucked up. Like you, like Sometimes you need to eat a pint of ice cream and sometimes I do that shit, right? But to be eating like a jar of Nutella, like at least two a week, like to be eating it like that, like that is an unhealthy coping mechanism. And so this is all going on during my first breakup. I was using Nutella specifically Um, and this was definitely the start of my binge eating disorder. So I at this point, I wasn't restricting. I was only binge eating. And then I remember that I got really unhappy with like my body eventually. And I like reflected on it. And I looked up like how to lose weight. Don't look that up. And it's like calories in, calories out. And that started like my my fitness pal journey. And my fitness pal had always been an application that was on my phone because I've always had a contentious relationship to food. But this was when it started to become like a restriction mindset. So I started to go into the other direction. And as an unhealthy coping mechanism, I used food as a form of control where when I felt so fucking sad and anxious and out of control, I would use food as a way to control. So I wouldn't eat anything or I would overeat things and I would be plugging in every little calorie of like vitamins and stuff like that 
because it made me feel in control. So this lasts. I go home for the summer. It's lasting. I'm definitely restricting the whole summer. I lose a lot of weight, got very, very thin, go back to college, got my breast reduction, and everyone's like, wow, she looks great. I'm getting it hyped up, whatever. Being back in the same area as my ex-boyfriend and reigniting my relationship to him again sends me into another spiral. And that's when I start this binge and restrict thing that lasted into 2020 in different ways. Um, it was a big yo-yo when I lived in the sorority house and I was single and I was and I was struggling in terms of friendships, in terms of identity, in terms of this guy. I was using it as a form of control and I was using food as my only coping mechanism. Um, then I started to use guys as a coping mechanism. Um, my ex, you know, like made me feel like I would be pathetic if I didn't have someone. So I just jumped in between random people. I met my second ex who I dated for a year and a half, like in the bout of like, I always need to have someone in my life where I'm pathetic and I'm using men as a form of, you know, a coping mechanism. And I, and I found my second ex-boyfriend who was definitely like the first love of my life. I, I found him like during that time, like I was aggressively online, like looking for someone to love me. Um, and I, and I used him as a coping mechanism. Um, and then I started using exercise as a coping mechanism. So I would over-exercise. Like, I had this thing in my brain that I needed to burn 700 calories every time I went to the gym. Like, that's so arbitrary and, frankly, doesn't do anything. Like, if I was sick, I would go to the gym to burn 700 calories. Like, it was fucked up. And if I didn't do it, I would be so mad at myself. And people in my life were kind – I was ostracizing myself, like, pretty drastically. And I know I'm talking about this, like – yeah, and then I was doing this fucked up shit. But it's because I've really come so far that, like, this was – happening in 2017 so this was enough time away I'm like I'm like looking at 2022 on this calendar being okay five years I've really come to terms with like all of this and I've really resonated with it and now I'm just trying to tell you my story so that we can get to the good stuff about coping mechanisms um and so I was using exercise as a coping mechanism and again your partner, your significant other can be a healthy coping mechanism and exercise can be a healthy coping mechanism. And both of those things are healthy coping mechanisms for me. But they used to be really, really toxic coping mechanisms for me because it wasn't so much about what the coping mechanism was, but how I was utilizing it and how I was using my coping mechanism to fill a void inside of me instead of addressing the void and having additional coping mechanisms to help me while I addressed it. I also wasn't going to therapy. I wasn't doing anything really productive um, in any way, shape, or form. So then over quarantine, I'm still using exercise and food in early quarantine. I definitely started to recover, I would say, end of 2020. So I would say about um, a year and a half now, I felt like really, really good. Um, And I would say a year, I felt great. So in 2020 in quarantine, I'm still using exercise and food as a coping mechanism. Um, And then I read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And she says something, and I'm going to read it to you because I reiterate it all the time. She says, easy buttons are the things that appear in front of us that we want to reach for because they temporarily take us out of our pain and stress. They do not work in the long run because what they actually do is help us to abandon ourselves. Easy buttons take us to fake heaven. Fake heaven always turns out to be hell. You know you've hit an easy button when afterward you feel more lost in the woods than you did before you hit it. It is taken me 40 years to decide that when I feel bad, I want to do something that makes me feel better instead of worse. I keep a handwritten poster in my office titled easy buttons and reset buttons. On the left are all the things I do to abandon myself and on the right are my reset buttons, the things I can do to make staying with myself a little more possible. First of all, fucking icon. She's literally, I will cry. I love her. But 
I read that and I was like, oh my God. I was like, literally food. Like that was the first thing that came into my head because I'd been struggling so much with binge and restrict eating disorder. And I could do a whole separate episode about my recovery from that if you guys want, because this isn't necessarily about that. Um, but I was like, okay, food came into my brain immediately as an easy button because I was, I was pushing food whenever I felt scared and stressed and sad. And then after I would be done binging on food or restricting and the next day I'd wake up famished or feeling weak, I would feel so much worse. And she basically goes on to say in the book after this little paragraph that she had to start looking at her easy buttons and then like I call them hard buttons, but she calls them reset buttons, finding a list of hard buttons that she could switch them out intentionally. So for example, her easy buttons were like drugs and alcohol and sex and a couple other things. I forget. Um, and and food. I think food was one of them. And she would f- make a list of hard reset or reset buttons, hard buttons. Maybe that's like go on a walk and I have a whole list of them, but like whatever that is for you. And whenever you're feeling really stressed, really sad, and you're going to reach for an easy button, intentionally say, I'm going to reach for the hard button instead. Maybe the hard button doesn't make you feel euphoric in the moment, but I promise you tomorrow it'll make you feel better. And sometimes we just have to be looking out for the person that is going to wake up tomorrow and face repercussions from our easy buttons. And listen, One of my hard reset buttons is food now, but it's food in a different way. And one of my hard reset buttons is my partner, but it's my partner in a different way. And one of my hard reset buttons is exercise, but it's exercise in a different way. And we're going to get there. Um, So once I read this, I was like, I'm going to try to rewire my brain, but it's not a linear process. And like, it wasn't like I I just the next day was like, "Mm, hard reset button, like, let's go meditate. Like that isn't realistic. And I don't like that, like that unrealistic pressure that that's going to be like, you know, the fixer upper, right? So for a while, I kind of tried to start doing it. And you know what, I would say like, if there were five times that I wanted to hit a button, maybe three, I would hit an easy button and two, I would hit a hard button. But those two were wins. Those are fucking wins. Every single time that you're freaking out or you're sad or you're anxious and you're looking for a way to cope and you decide I'm going to cope by doing something that's going to help tomorrow me instead of I'm going to cope in a way that's going to help me for the next 20 minutes and then make me feel like shit. It was a win, right? And I think sex was really like that also and 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 hookups and romantic things because for me, a casual hookup in the moment, it feels so good to like be with someone, to sleep in someone's bed, to have someone there with you. But the minute that you get up and you walk back into reality for me, and I know other people, casual sex might be your hard button and go for it. But for me, I would wake up the next day and feel like fucked up. Like I'd feel shitty because I would, I, I really deeply attribute intimacy to romance and when I didn't have that emotional fulfillment after the physical fulfillment I would feel worse and so I had to tell myself like okay that doesn't make you feel good that's an easy button for you and maybe that's a hard button for someone else but it's not for you and that's totally fine how are we going to replace it so then I'm quarantining in New York essentially Um, I moved to New York for grad school in August of 2020 And at this point, food is not as big of a coping mechanism negatively as it had been for me. It starts to become alcohol. Now, I don't want to say I ever had an alcohol problem, and I don't think I did. I definitely took a step back at one point and was like, oh, I'm drinking wine every night or I'm drinking wine like six times a week. And like that to me is something that's triggering thought in my brain. Like, is this appropriate? Um, like I was literally taking my classes at home. It was gray in New York. I would like, the gyms weren't open for a while. So I was working out at home. My room had no windows. I was definitely in a depressive episode. 
And I remember being like, okay, I'm having a glass of wine every day or like two glasses. I don't feel like I have an alcohol problem at all, but I was relying on it. Like it was my happiness at the end of the day. And like, again, one of my hard buttons at this point is a glass of wine to take the edge off, but it's not my hard button every day. Like when I was in this depressive episode, I was using it every single day and it became, it wasn't helping. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I had a stressful day. You know what would feel great right now? A glass of Pinot Grigio. That's going to make me feel better. Or going out to get ice cream. It was more so like, I'm fucking hate my life right now. I'm just going to drink three glasses of wine and go to bed and feel the same way tomorrow. So I wasn't doing anything proactive to help myself. Um, and I also started using dating as a coping mechanism again. So I was going on dates to distract myself of the reality of my situation or just like look for male validation and affirmation outside instead of like becoming a little bit more insular and finding them within myself. So for example, I would just like go on these dates and get this affirmation and validation. And then when it wouldn't work out, I would just find someone else and replace them. And I would think to myself, I'm just going to keep doing this till I find someone. I'm just going to keep doing this till I find someone. And that's going to be fine because that person is going to be my coping mechanism. Number one, we cannot rely on another person to be our one and only support system or our one and only coping mechanism. I use the gas tank metaphor all the time, but I'll reiterate it now. Like you have, you're comprised of many gas tanks and one of them is for your romantic partners, but they can only fill that gas tank. They're not also required to fill your friend gas tank and your passions gas tank and your education gas tank or whatever other gas tanks you have. They're only required to fill their romantic partnership gas tank. That is so fucking important to remember and I hope you remember it now. Um, and so I was really, I was, I was using men as a way to sort of distract myself from all my thoughts and wine, both of these things back to back. And so it was no longer food, but I was doing the same things I did with food. I was kind of using it as a form of control. And then I started to realize like what I perceive myself to lack, like whatever that is, like this hole that I feel inside of me, this emptiness, this longing not one other person could possibly ever fill that for me. Like no man, no glass of wine, nothing. Like it's not going away. Only I can fill that myself. And I think that I, I talk about this a lot, but I, I've really started focusing on like, okay, if I feel like I lack something, nobody else can fill the holes for me. I have to, you know, and I'm I'm trying to figure out why I've been coping in this way and I don't really know. But at the end of the day, maybe I need to get to the heart of why I'm struggling and less so how I'm going to cope with the fact that I am. I kind of lived in this reality like I'm struggling and I'm upset. Nothing else. Like I hate my life. Nothing else. And it's kind of like, okay. And again, I'm not really talking about clinical depression. You guys know I always say this if I'm not talking about that because I've never been diagnosed with clinical depression. Like I was just having a very sad, lonely time. If you have depression, obviously go get help, go to therapy, anxiety, be on medication. Like people need those things to survive. That's not what I'm saying. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that. I was kind of just like, maybe I need to figure out why I don't feel comfortable in my life instead of questioning all the time. Why do I not feel comfortable? And I read something recently that was like, our baseline is kind of like homeostasis and we have to go out and find and claim our happiness and our happy place and on our joy. We have to go out and find and claim those things. If if it was easy, everybody would have it and everybody would do it. I'm not saying that happiness is hard or happiness should be a special occasion. It absolutely shouldn't be. But it definitely is something that we have to go out and claim and find ourselves. So 
I started to be a little bit more intentional about thinking like, okay, I'm going to get to the heart of why I'm struggling. I'm going to kind of rewire my own brain and figure out like why I've been so sad. And I'm going to be a little bit more intentional about my actions and doing things because I want to do them, not because I think that other people want me to do them. So that was kind of, you know, that whole situation. And then, you know, I kind of found a lot of coping mechanisms that worked for me and we're going to get into that. And then I graduated grad school and that was last year and I started working my job and then there were different coping mechanisms I needed during that time and then now um what's been going on with my personal anxiety is that I think when I you know started doing this I didn't really think about it like all these opportunities are coming at you all these followers it's so exciting you got such a high you have such a rush you don't really get a time to like stop and think about what it means or stop and think if you want this or the way that you want it some people do a really good job at that fortunately I just didn't so as things have settled I've kind of had time to think about and realize what it all means and like how grateful I am and and the things that I struggle with in regard to the work that I do and I think sometimes we forget to kind of just like take landscape as something's happening we sort of just like metaphorically black out that's definitely what happened to me I metaphorically blacked I was like I don't fucking know what's going on when I woke up from all of that I was like okay we're here and I need to figure out like how I'm going to cope with the added stress of like having the off day but feeling the need to perform the hate comments the way that I feel like this has changed or hardened me or altered uh, altered me and the first thing I had to realize was like things are allowed to change And when they do, the way we cope often has to change as well. Um, And we have to keep that easy button, hard button thing in mind as we go through all of that. So I'm going to tell you some of my personal coping mechanisms and then we'll get into a a little bit of other content. Um, One of my favorite coping mechanisms is listening to podcasts (laughs) as I record my own. I think having voices in my ear and like feeling like I'm friends with those people has really helped me. Definitely not in a parasocial way because I don't pretend to know the girls on Girls Gotta Eat, but like we have inside jokes because I listen to their podcast every single week. I also picked up Burning in Hell, which is Hannah Burner's podcast. I also listen to Glennon Doyle's podcast. There are a couple others I listen to, but whenever I'm super anxious, I don't even need – I'll put on any episode of Girls Gotta Eat and just listen to it. And I'll walk and I'll just listen to them talk. And sometimes I don't even listen to the content. It's just about like hearing their voice. That really, really helps me. And I don't even think that they know like what they've done for me in that regard. Because a lot of people will thank them so much for the content of their podcasts. And of course, I love the content of their podcast. That's what they work so hard on. But for me, it's really also about just like the how comforting they are for me. Um, So that's a really big one journaling lately specifically has been so helpful um i'm a big write down person i if i was in an argument or a confrontation with someone it's nearly impossible for me to articulate what i'm feeling if i don't if i don't write it down first it can sometimes be really intimidating when i'm having a serious conversation with someone and i pull out the notes app because i'm like i simply can't discuss this with you if i don't have my notes app open um so writing is really really helpful reading is helpful sometimes just going to sleep um i definitely think that that's one of those ones that could have that could also be become a hard or rather an easy button and something that I abuse as a coping mechanism but for me it's mostly been good because I don't sleep a lot anyway um therapy is a really healthy coping mechanism for me 
calling a friend and sometimes it's a little bit difficult for me to pick that one out of my list because um, I'm a little bit of an insulated kind of like introverted person but I always remind myself how much better I feel after talking to specifically Veronica or Allie Um, those are my two like long distance best friends and we don't call a ton but when we do and we talk for like an hour I feel so much better and so refreshed after even if we didn't even talk about any of the shit that I'm struggling with and we just sort of had a conversation open-ended or talked about pop culture or anything else um being outside really helps me because a lot of times I'll feel really like claustrophobic when I'm anxious or sad um meditation is another one that's hard for me because I fucking can't sit still and I can never focus but when I get myself to focus it's really good you can just start with the five minute one I'll look up five minute meditation on YouTube and it really does calm me down especially if I'm in a time of panic that one's really good for me like retro nasal breathing and listening to like some calming sounds and like a guided meditation is really helpful um I also did this like um kind of activity with my therapist where I'll like look at an object and like like really look at it and like ask myself questions about it and kind of like take my mind out of whatever it's in um a dance party in the kitchen never hurt for me working out is a huge coping mechanism um I think you know, it's one of those ones I have to be careful about just because I don't I can definitely overdo it. But normally when I get a sweat in and I just like go for a run and I usually put a cap on it when I'm anxious or sad because it helps me to not abuse the privilege of being able to do that. So, for example, so I'm just going to run three miles or I'm going to go to the gym for 40 minutes. No more because you don't want to go to the other end of things. Um, let's see. Uh, music. So again, I really like like stimulation in my brain. Music is so helpful. Like not listening to sad music on purpose, listening to happy music. I have some playlists that I listen to when I'm specifically anxious or sad that I love. TV, um, but for me it needs to be mindless. So like keeping up with the Kardashians or like Dance Moms or Glee or a rom-com. I can't really be like, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch Law and Order SVU and I'm freaking the fuck out. Like that's definitely not a coping mechanism for me. Baking and cooking because I feel like you're following like instructions and it can make you feel super in control. For me, a shower. I love to shower. Everyone knows that about me and that's definitely a coping mechanism. Driving, um, if you have the ability. I don't currently because I live in New York City, but when I'm at home, I love to just get in the car and drive with the windows down window shopping is always helpful being around other people you never really know how much you just need human interaction like on a very basic level um a lot of people sent in crying I'm not sure if that's technically one of mine but I definitely think it's a good one I'm just letting it all out having my favorite dinner and again that's one of the ones that I just have to be a little careful with and and extra intentional because I do feel so healed and like I do feel really in control around food but like eating until I'm full and not overeating just because I said that I could have my favorite dinner and like remembering that there's leftovers and I'll have the ability to eat that tomorrow as well all of that stuff um that that stuff is really important um having a glass of wine again same thing um I try not to use alcohol as a healthy coping mechanism or a hard button but if it's like if it's more so a stress thing sometimes to take the edge off a glass of wine is really great um unplugging from my phone and yeah those are mine I think that I've definitely rewritten some of them in the time period since I started finding ways to cope in a healthy way um 
And I think it's kind of like each person, like you might have heard my coping mechanisms and be like, oh, I hate all of those. Like mine are completely and totally different. And I have some more ideas of ones that I don't use that I, that I think are great um, that I'll share with you guys. And that's fine. We're all going to have different ways of coping and different coping mechanisms. And you don't need to just wake up tomorrow and be like, here are my new coping mechanisms. Like you can try. Like when you're feeling super sad and you don't know how to cope and you just heard that list, maybe go down my list that I just gave and the other options that I'm going to give and try different ones and see what ends up feeling good. And for me, sometimes I'll try a different one that I haven't tried before. And every so often I'll try one again that didn't feel right, but maybe it feels right now. Um, I think in order to find out what works for you in terms of coping, you have to fucking try them out. It might be super trial and error and it might feel really weird and you might feel really frustrated, but you have to try these out. Um, for me, it doesn't really help for me to sit in my room by myself. I know this now about me. It's definitely difficult to get me out of that space and get me into the world when I'm struggling. But for maybe half hour, 40 minutes, I can sit in my room and then I need to get out. Typically, I want to be with other people. Um, and I've realized that with me and coping mechanisms, it needs to be a healthy mix of being with other people and just being with myself. And other people could mean total and complete strangers at the yoga studio. Other people could mean the fucking cashier at Trader Joe's. Other people can mean my therapist. It doesn't need to be like, I went out with my besties as a coping mechanism. And that also could be a coping mechanism. Um, specifically for panic attacks. I will listen to the five-minute meditation, shower, and go outside. Those are, like, my big three for panic attacks. Um, the other ones are mostly just for, like, general discomfort or, like, daily coping. Like, at this point in the world, like, let me just say, like, a lot of fucked up shit is happening in the world. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stress. The anxiety is high. Tensions are running high. Like, on a day-to-day basis, we're all trying to cope. And and those things that I listed, I do a lot of them on a day-to-day basis because I know that they're coping mechanisms for me. Um, so... You guys also wanted to know how how to be okay with kind of like the unknown and uncertainty as it relates to coping me- mechanisms. Um, and for me, like something that's kind of comforting about the unknown and uncertainty is that it's something that we all face. Like as a collective, nobody knows what the future brings. Nobody knows what's around what's around their corner. And everyone's a little uncertain. Everybody's struggling. It's something that we all face. And so I kind of like I pull back and I ask myself, okay, what do we know though? Because that's what we don't know. What do we know? right? Like, what do we know? In some ways, like, we're always going to be out of control. We're always not going to know something. And I hate that. And it's taken me a lot of work in therapy to remind myself that I'm not an anomaly in that way, that everybody hates not knowing. Nobody knows. But all we have is the present. So we have to start asking ourselves what we do know. And that's a wonderful way to get yourself back in control and um, just choosing to live life as an opportunity and putting yourself in the driver's seat is so, so important. Um, And I think like, you know, for me, it's been helpful to incorporate my coping mechanisms on a daily basis. I do a lot of things preemptively instead of like as a – you know, a way to heal something, I'll do it before it even happens. So for me, I know that maybe a week is going to bring stress. I know that not everything is going to go as planned. And so preemptively, I do my coping mechanisms. Preemptively, I journal. Preemptively, I'm going on runs and calling my mom and doing et cetera and X, Y, Z. Also, when something comes up, I'm bringing in my coping mechanisms to help heal whatever happened. But it's really great for me to acknowledge that it helps me to preemptively do coping mechanisms before there's something to cope with. Because honestly, for me, there's always something to cope with. But you know what I mean, right? Like, there, it's very helpful for me to do it preemptively and not just after something happens that I need to cope with. Then it also becomes like second nature. And I think you're just mentally way better off. 
You guys also want to know what to do after overeating or what that looks like for me after overeating. Um, I mean, first and foremost, I try to remind myself and be super intentional about not beating myself up about it. And I think it's definitely difficult. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, just tell yourself, don't be sad. Don't be upset. Like, I think it can be really bullshitty when people are like, just don't weigh yourself. I'm like, well, you've clearly never been in scale jail before or felt like what that feels like to base every single thing that you do around a number. Um, but I really, I've become so intentional about if that does happen, not beating myself up, you know, like sometimes we overeat, that's a fact. And even if my mind goes to beating myself up, I intentionally start to change my thoughts. Um, and for physical actions, I'll usually have like lemon water. I'll usually take a cold shower and then I'll put on something comfortable and just get in my bed with a show or a book. Because here's the thing, like, The future is out of our control, which we just discussed. The past is also out of your control. So all you know how to do is to react to what did happen, to react to your reality, to react to whatever thing that happened in your life that you feel like went wrong or went right. All we can control is our reactions because the actions already happened. Once they're done, they're done. So for me, there's preventative coping mechanisms. There's coping mechanisms after the fact. Um, And like, you know, after I overeat, drinking the lemon water and taking a cold shower and distracting myself with a really funny episode of like Curb Your Enthusiasm is what I do after that. Okay. So seasonal depression is also something that you guys wanted me to talk about as it relates to coping mechanisms. Um, so interestingly enough, I never really experienced seasonal depression in the winter, which is I know when it's most common for me is honestly more in the summer. I think there's just an overwhelming pressure to be really happy in the summer, to be exuberant and doing things and going outside and like drinking Aperol spritzes. And there's a lot of pressure. Um, and during that, the time of summer, coping mechanisms tend to really help me because I'm a very wintry person. I like to be inside. I like the cold weather. I like when it snows. Um, Um, for me, reading self-help books, I'm reading By Yourself the Fucking Lilies, which I think I've mentioned, and then also listening to Glennon Doyle's podcast. She had a recent episode with, who was it? Um, Samantha Kirby, Irby, um, who's a writer and a comedian, and it's wonderful, and I really recommend it, but it helps me to just feel, like, not lame when I feel like my life isn't as cool as other people's lives. I try to remember, remind myself that in some ways I'm also, like, happy with my reality that I've chosen and that I've worked for, and I don't necessarily want to change my reality, and if I did, then I'm in the driver's seat of that, too. So I would say that for me, those are the coping mechanisms I use in terms of seasonal depression, but I'm also not seasonally depressed in the winter. Now, I do know a lot of people do those like sunlight lamps. A lot of people will up their vitamin dosages in the winter when there's less sun around. There's a ton of things that you can do, and we could get into that more in the winter time. Okay. Sabotaging relationships because of how we choose to cope. So I would say 1,000% an easy button coping mechanism is sabotaging relationships. I have a billion times done this or will try to do it. And so I usually just try to communicate to my people to the best of my ability that I struggle with certain things and what happens when I struggle. So at this point in time, my romantic relationship, in my romantic relationship, the other person knows the kind of things that set me off, the kind of things that give me anxiety and the kind of coping that works for me. Um, and it's really helpful to just be on the same page and have communicated like, Hey, when I am having a panic attack, this is what helps the most. And this is what doesn't help at all because then I don't sabotage my relationships. Also, I've talked a lot about self-sabotage in therapy because I have been, I have been known to sabotage a relationship or two in my day and I definitely regret it and I don't want to do it again. So I definitely have unpacked that with her and I cannot express how helpful that has been for me. Okay. Also, people want to know what's coping and what's overindulging. Um, 
I think you just have to know your limitations because for me, like, a coping mechanism is getting Chipotle when I'm having a bad fucking day and I want my Chipotle. Overindulging is being like, now that I had Chipotle, I'll also consume a pint of ice cream, a bag of chips, and um, everything in my pantry. That is my that is my definition of overindulging. You have to define these things yourself. I think that one thing that's really important to note is that my reality and your reality are very, very different. Now, I can empathize with your reality, and maybe we have a similar reality. I actually don't know all of you guys personally. But what I'm trying to say is that my definitions of things and the way I look at the world and the way I see things and the way I exist in my reality and the way that you do all of those things are entirely and incredibly different so for that you have to ask yourself like what is my coping and what is my overindulge right and make sure you're doing it in a healthy way and definitely talk to a therapist about it and yeah I also think ask yourself is it benefiting you in the long term because binge eating is not benefiting me in the long term the euphoria of doing it in the moment I'm not gonna lie that's why people fucking do it because it feels good in the moment. You release temporary serotonin into your brain or at least mine does when I do that. Then literally five minutes later, I hate myself and I try to remind myself of the feeling that comes after, right? And I remind myself if I just have the Chipotle for dinner, that's benefiting me in the long run and I feel really good and I feel really happy and I feel really great that I did that. Same thing with healthy versus unhealthy coping mechanisms. Is it benefiting you in the long run? Literally, like, sometimes we feel stupid asking ourselves questions that we feel like we should know the answers to, but I fucking didn't know the answer. When I was in the thick of my eating problems, I did not know if it was benefiting me long-term or not, and I would not have asked myself that question because I didn't want to know the answer. Getting to a place where I wanted to know the answer was the single most best thing I ever did for myself, and it took a lot of therapy and a lot of inner work and a lot of reading to be like, I want to know the answer to that question. Is this benefiting me long-term? And being able to say no was the first step. I was still binging when I realized that, right? I was still using food as a method of control when I realized all of that. But I pulled back and I was like, okay, now I know it's not benefiting me and I'm willing to admit it. I'm going to ask for help. Things come in waves. Don't beat yourself up. Wherever you are in the process, you're doing fucking great and you're going to be okay and you can get to the other side. Okay, a list of additional coping mechanisms. Picture your happy place. I love this one. I was thinking about it, and my happy place tends to be with people in my life and not necessarily a specific place, which is cheesy. You know, it's like, home is whenever I'm with you. Like, okay, like, fuck, that's cliche. But it's like, it's true. And it's not just my boyfriend. It's my family. It's my friends. It's like literally being around the people I love. Or when I close my eyes and picture my happy place, I see, like, my backyard with my dog that unfortunately passed away. And just seeing that brings me a little joy or like looking at a picture of my sweet dog and knowing that I'm going to get a new dog in a year and I'm so fucking excited and its name is going to be Phoebe and I can't wait and you guys just all wait I haven't decided the breed yet but I have some ideas I'm going to rescue it her him I don't know name will be Phoebe either way um that's my happy place that I'm picturing that future for myself clean the house I fucking love this one too I was saying this recently either you're a laundry girly or you're a dish girly bitch I'm a dish girly and I literally hate doing laundry like that is not a coping mechanism for me never will be if it is for you go off but like actually like Lysoling surfaces coping mechanism love it garden I'm not gonna do that but if you are I'm happy for you <laughs> I don't think I could garden if my fucking life depended on it like my brother has a garden like in my brain I have this plan that I'm going to be an author I'm gonna have three kids two dogs and I'm going to have a jam company out of my kitchen where I make jams. And 
I haven't decided what it's called yet. I had some name ideas in college because um, there were times in college that were like, frankly, I'm going to drop out and open my jam company right now. I've always known I wanted to do this. So if anyone has any advice for um, like startup businesses, jam companies, and additionally gardening, that would be great because that's going to be my future. And I need to figure out that coping mechanism before I turn 30. Coloring or drawing, another one that I won't do, but love that for you. You can get one of those adult coloring books. It sounds great. A stress ball. I actually have one. I will say I like it. So that's good. There are relaxation apps. I probably think that my attention span won't deal with that very well. And I like the YouTube five minute ones. Those are what works for me. But maybe the app works for you. Download it. They're definitely free. Making a to-do list. This is really great. I think this is a good one. I always have to-do lists, so it's not necessarily a coping mechanism as it is more like a part of my routine, but I'm realizing more and more that my routine is comprised of a lot of coping mechanisms. Like my routine is one big fucking coping mechanism. It's like, here's how you're going to cope, like literally, so it probably is. Healthy boundary making. Love it. I'm very non-confrontational, so when I need to cope with something, making boundaries might not be the best way for me to do it, but maybe it's the best way for you. Walking away from situations giving you stress. Wonderful. Let's just say you are at work and you are at a work event after work. So you're not like on the clock being paid and you're feeling a little bit claustrophobic and a little bit anxious. And you say, I'm just going to take a step outside. That's a coping mechanism. And that's just a really wonderful one. And you should applaud yourself if you're brave enough to get there. Start planning a trip. I actually like this one too because it just takes your mind out of the reality of your situation and into something else like lovely and wonderful. Do you ever have to go on the trip? No. Like, no, go on Pinterest. Actually, hot tea. I'm like trying to become a Pinterest girl. Like, I'm not gonna lie. I was pinning. I'm a pinner. I don't know how to pin, by the way. So, if anyone has it, like, there's a couple of things going on right now in my brain. It's like jam, Phoebe the dog, Pinterest. <laughs> if you guys want, oh, the fourth thing going on in my brain, fuck me and my ADHD right now. But the fourth thing going on in my brain is the TikTok of the girl being like, Dr. Seuss is throwing down some beats. And then she's like, chicks with bricks come, chicks with. You haven't, it has 4 million likes. I know you've seen it. I was watching it last night. I was, I was wheezing. And she's like, she's like, he said, anyway, you want to come, you can come. I'm like, yes, like this is fire. And she was saying it's like a wrap. Those are, that's my brain right now. Anyway, another coping mechanism, list your positive qualities. I love that. I do something. So if I get dressed and I'm like, I look ugly, I hate my legs. I will not force myself to be like, you love yourself, love yourself. Instead, I'll be like, no. Take that negative energy, change it into positive energy and channel it somewhere else. So I'll be like, you know what? My eyes look really pretty today and my mascara went on smooth as fuck and I feel good about that. I'm not going to force myself to in that moment 180 the way I'm thinking about my legs because that's not realistic for me. I'm going to compliment myself in another way that feels genuine and affirming. So I love that. List your positive qualities. Play an instrument. I don't know if I told you guys this. I do play the piano. I feel like... When I used to live at home and I would get anxious, I would definitely play the piano. So I like that one. If you're an instrument girly, definitely play that. Um, watch a funny video. Chicks with bricks come. Chicks with rocks. <laughs> Please watch it. Like there's a Dr. Seuss ethos running through my TikTok for you page because after I watched that, then the morning toast came up and it's a video of Jackie Oshry being like, so I've been reading um, The Cat in Hat lately. And like she says it like she's like been reading fucking like I don't know, like, Lame is a Rob, like, the 2,000-page book that the musical is based on. Like, she says it like she's been reading, like, 
fucking Pride and Prejudice. She goes, I've been reading, um, so I've been reading Dr. Seuss lately. I've been reading The Cat in the Hat. She's like, and something that's so interesting about this is that, like, the cat, she, like, jumps into, like, a full-blown, and I'm not even kidding. When I am sad, I will watch it. Or, um, what's another one? Oh, Mariah Carey singing All I Want for Christmas is You at the New Year's Eve. Like, listen, don't bully her. She's a goddess. Like, she's an icon. Clearly, she wasn't feeling good or, like, her mic was turned off. But there's this part, and it's so bad. It's so funny, though. Like, because you know that she can sing so well that it's, like, fucking hilarious that she bombed. But, like, there's this part at the end where she's, like, singing All I Want for Christmas is You. And then she's, like, you, 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 you. And it's, like, all off in the most tragic way. And, like, it will bring me to tears in the best way every single time. Um, I don't know what that that video is for you, but like DM me them because I want to watch them and then you guys now have to watch those videos that I just mentioned. Video games and board games. Like I don't do either of those things ever. I have been kind of in a puzzle era lately. Um, so I don't know if that stuff would be helpful for you guys, but that's what someone said. And then random acts of kindness. I actually really love that one. I know sometimes it's hard to get out of your own brain and like think about other people when you're struggling with something because it's hard for me to do that too. But I think random acts of kindness can be really helpful and making somebody else feel good, complimenting someone genuinely, all of that good stuff. If you guys have more coping mechanisms, those are the ones that I listed. Please let me know. Okay. And then I wanted to end this off with some mantras um, that I that I tell myself that I found, etc. The first one is my feelings and thoughts are valid, and that's it. I think we spend so much time disqualifying our own thoughts, being like, I'm crazy. Here's the thing. You're not. You cannot help the way that you feel. If you're feeling something, you can't help that. What you can help is your reaction to having that emotion. You can help your reaction. And something that will help your reaction to having an emotion is affirming that you have that emotion. A lot of people will DM me. I just feel like I'm falling out of love with my boyfriend. I'm trying to convince myself I'm not. You might be. So affirm that you're feeling that way and then start unpacking what that means. Start developing what your reaction is. How are you going to act based on these feelings? You know, like I think my my therapist said feelings, thoughts, behaviors is how it goes. You feel something, you develop a thought, then you develop your behavior. Literally changed my life. The next one. The panic that I feel is temporary. Every panic attack has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I am somewhere in that cycle. This is the most, for me, comforting thing ever. Sitting with that and being like, every panic attack has a beginning, middle, and an end, and I'm somewhere in the cycle. Every time makes me realize that there's a, there's going to be a moment when this is over, and that is beautiful. Um, every problem has a solution. Love that one. It's simple, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves of the simple things. Um, this is one that my favorite Peloton instructor, Robin Arzone, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, always says, I've been through 100% of my hardest days. Like you have. So when you're going through something, like, I have been through 100% of my hardest days, what makes me think I cannot get through this one. Peloton is a coping mechanism for me. It is. I am, power- I am powerful and in control of my reality. Period. What you think you become. I think that goes back to feelings, thoughts, behaviors. Love that. Um, breathe in relaxation, breathe out tension. That one really helps me too. Okay. Well, that's all I had about coping mechanisms. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you feel like if you're using this podcast as a coping mechanism, I hope today was a double whammy where you were like, it was very meta experience where you were coping and now you're like, okay, I'm going to go watch funny videos about Dr. Seuss. Chicks with bricks come. I'm going to post it on my story. I'm going to post it on my story on Friday. So to make sure that you guys all see it. 
But anyway, I will see you next week on my fucking birthday. Don't forget to wish me, Selena Gomez, Madison Pettis, and every other Cancer Leo cusp born on July 22nd a happy birthday, but especially me, because I do love my birthday very much. Even though I'm not in the celebratory mood, I will be in the attention mood because I frankly always am and be self-aware. Stay self-aware, girls. Anyway, I love you so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And without further ado... We are now going to jump into my very first guest listener ever, which is going to start a long-winded series of, at the end of every episode, we're going to have a guest listener call in, and I really hope you guys choose to listen, because I think what they have to say is so fucking important, and each and one, every one of you that is going to be calling in has such a wonderful, beautiful story. If you're interested in applying to be on the podcast, you can hit me up on the link in my bio. There's a Google form there and we're going through them. We picked like a batch of 15 people to start and we're going to do it every quarter, like 15 to 20 people. So be persistent, be patient, bump me if you need me. I love you guys so much and enjoy this interview. Talk to you next week. Bye. All right, guys, I have my first guest from the Google form I put out looking to have guests on my podcast who want to tell a story or talk about something that's important to them or something they're an expert on. I'm here today with Annie McKillican, and we are going to talk about a lot of things that specifically stem from climate justice and climate change. But hi, Annie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Eli. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited. Um, To get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of like who you are, kind of what your story is, where you're from, how old are you, anything you're comfortable sharing, tell us a little bit about you. Absolutely. Uh, So my name is Annie. I'm Algonquin from the Mattawa North Bay Algonquin First Nation in Eastern Ontario, which uh, for those who are not familiar is a province in Canada. Um, It's about three hours west of Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. Um, And I'm currently a graduate student at Trent University, which is also in Canada. Um, And I study Indigenous studies. Um, So I'm 23 years old. I'm a Cancer, just like you, Eli. Oh my gosh. When's your birthday? When's your birthday? Um, my birthday is July 16th, okay, so, so very close to yours. Literally 10 days. <laughs> um, so I am here today to talk about um, climate change, but also more broadly to talk about Indigenous liberation and Indigenous resurgence and how supporting that movement can actually be a really effective climate solution. Um, something that a lot of governments don't really focus on, but something that's way more effective than anything governments could ever produce yeah okay that sounds so interesting can you how did you get into that like what inspired you to pursue this sort of field of thought and and pursue this as sort of a career and also in school yeah so I mean obviously I have a personal interest in the subject matter as an indigenous person who lives in Canada um my family and you know the family of my relatives has been affected by Uh, industrialization and by colonization for generations. Um, But also when I uh, went to university when I was 18, um, I started studying Indigenous studies as a means to kind of get to know more about where I came from. A lot of Indigenous people across North America are very disconnected from their culture. Um, And so through that study, I kind of found some courses about like Indigenous environmentalism, things like that. 
Um, and right as I was applying to grad school in 2020, right before the pandemic, um, I came across, or rather, I, I had a professor who um, put me on to a bunch of different resources about how um, climate change and Indigenous peoples are so intrinsically linked in the way that Indigenous people can be a solution to climate change. Um, and so that was something that really kind of stuck with me. And as I went into grad school, it was something that I wanted to explore more. And so that's what I've been doing with my um, thesis, which is now completed, not defended. <laughs> oh um, but it's about specifically um, the ways in which uh, climate change harms Indigenous people disproportionately to other populations and and what we can do to sort of reverse those effects. Okay, amazing. I have so many questions, but before I ask you about your thesis, can you give us, because I know a lot of people listening probably know nothing about this, um, honestly, sure. myself included, I'm going to plead ignorance because I don't know much about this. Can you explain a little bit about how Indigenous peoples relate to climate justice and, and what these solutions are and a little bit more about your work, just to give us a background before we get into more of like the nitty gritty and like, you know, calls for action and, and expanding on your thesis, kind of give us an overview in case... We don't know, you know, everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as a little background, um, Indigenous peoples in North America are quite a small percentage of the population currently. Um, in the United States, Indigenous people represent about 2% of the American population, which is about 5 million people. And in Canada, about 5% of the population, which is 1.7 million people. So that's not very many people, right? And the numbers are similar uh, globally. So Indigenous peoples represent 5% of the global population. However, they protect over 80% of biodiversity worldwide, which is incredible. If you think about this tiny percentage of, of people protecting such a huge majority of like our ecosystems, our biodiversity, our wildlife, things like that. And so Indigenous people have been protecting the environment since what we like to call time immemorial, which means since their existence on these lands, America, the Americas, um, which we can translate to mean hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and so climate change or the early signs of climate change only began with the start of industrialization and the industrial revolution in the late 1700s, which coincidentally, or maybe not so much coincidentally, coincides with the colonization of the Americas and the settling of Europeans on this territory. So during this time of industrialization and colonization, indigenous peoples were displaced from their lands, they were disenfranchised, they were subjected to harsh criminalization of their practices, cultures, languages, family structures, governances, those things were all taken away. And they were victims of both cultural and physical genocide through Indian boarding schools in the United States and Indian residential schools through the United States, or in Canada, sorry. Um, and so Indigenous peoples in the Americas no longer had access to their lands to be able to take care of them the way that they did and that they had for thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans. And so that's when we started to see, and especially as industrialization has ramped up since the 1700s, as we know, there's a lot more industry here now than there was back then. This sort of removal of Indigenous peoples from their lands has only increased. And that's when we've seen climate change 
ramp up in, in that way as well. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot here and I like listening to this, it like deeply saddens me that this isn't being discussed, but like also it's, I guess it makes sense. Cause like what, what is being discussed in this country right now? That's productive in any way, <laughs> shape or form. You know what I mean? Oh, exactly. Did you find that a lot of other people were interested in like having these types of conversations and studying this while you were in school? Or did you find that you were kind of like a fighting voice? I mean, I think it's difficult for me to answer that just because of the people that I've surrounded myself with ever since I started university. Um, Being in an Indigenous Studies program for the past six years, I've been around other Indigenous people who had similar experiences and similar interests to me, and also just being around kind of leftist people in general, um, or people who were involved in like the climate justice movement. These were conversations that people around me were having. But I would say if I look beyond my own personal circles, this is definitely not something that is like mainstream in the climate justice movement, in like the conservationist movement, um, because a lot of the focus in those movements is um, still very much on like European capitalist solutions to climate change, which a lot of the times are what we would call false solutions or things that are addressing like a surface level problem, but not addressing the root of, of the climate change problem. So can you explain some of these false solutions? Cause I have a feeling that a lot of people would think that the false solutions that you just said might be actual climate related solutions. Yeah. So the first one that I think of, and I mean, I, I want to just disclaim that I'm not an expert on policy in the United States, My focus is much more on Canada and things that are happening north of the border. But in the United States, the the Green New Deal comes to mind as something that a lot of um, Democrats and just leftists in general kind of herald as like the future of the United States in the way that, you know, we're going to be saved from the climate crisis. But in reality, the Green New Deal is not a fully fleshed out proposal as of right now. And likely, if it wants to pass through Congress, which is a colonial institution, we'll have to make major concessions as there's, you know, Republicans and things like that (laughs) to bear in mind. And things Um, like that. If it's able to pass at all. (laughs) Things like Republicans. Um, And so the Green New Deal is, is seen as like the future of climate justice. But in reality, if it's able to pass at all, it will likely look very different than what people are imagining is something that will reverse the effects of climate change or begin to even address them. And then in Canada, for example, we have a number of different climate plans that are developed by the federal government. And things do work a little differently here in terms of passing legislation. So these are things that have been passed into law. But when you look at what they truly entail, um, the climate plans in Canada involve sustaining the oil and gas industry, Uh, which is one of the leading factors of violence against Indigenous women and the largest contributor to carbon emissions in Canada. And that is something that our government in Canada has been focused on sustaining for economic purposes, even though it is the number one contributor to climate change in this country. So while, you know, we can put out a piece of legislation that says, you know, Canada's climate plan, pan-Canadian framework for climate change. We have to look and see what that really involves. And a lot of the times it's putting money before real change. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. I'm I'm curious, and I know you just said you don't, obviously your studies are 
consolidated mostly in Canada. Do you think that there's a world in which this, not the solution, but one solution is us working together instead of like creating completely disparate solutions to a problem that's impacting all of us? Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the main um, issues when it comes to Indigenous uh, organizing is that we're divided by this artificial border, right? Um, There are many Indigenous peoples in Canada and the United States who have ancestral land on both sides of the border, but can't access that land because of there being a border and them only having citizenship in one country. And there are certain treaties that allow Indigenous people to move freely across the border, but it's very complicated to be identified in that way. Border Patrol doesn't always recognize that treaty. It's just like overall a hassle. And then we have the issue of two different countries creating two different forms of legislation through two different systems that don't necessarily work together when the reality is we're all sharing the same piece of land we're all sharing the same air, you know, there's not like a giant glass wall at the border that separates our emissions. Yeah, it's all the same, right? Yes, that's very, very true. So hearing all of this, and like with all of this in mind, you know, what do you think that someone could do who like, you're because most of my listeners are from America. So like, your average American, like 25 year old woman, like my kind of my demographic of listeners is like a 25, 26 year old American woman. What is something she can do? And maybe what are the like larger, I guess this is a two part question that we could break down. So I guess what on the small level could one person do? And then in terms of larger solutions, like what is your dream giant solution here? Wow. (laughs) Okay. So in terms of Maybe I'll start with like my giant dream. Yeah, solution, let's start there. I should have asked you like that. <laughs> I think that'll make it easier for me. So my dream solution is that we as a society, as a people, as, you know, countries that exist on this land, turn back to an original way of relating to the earth, which means that we see the earth as a relative who offers us gifts and not as a resource that we need to extract from as much as possible to make as much money as possible. So returning to this idea of reciprocity, where the earth will sustain us if we sustain the earth and we will not take more than we need and then everything will be great. Um, That's a very big and sort of abstract ideal world. And so I think in order to get to that, we have to look at like, why does climate change exist? Why do these things exist? Why do these problems exist? And in a lot of ways, it's because of the way that we exist in a capitalist society. And capitalism touches every single aspect of our lives way beyond the climate, way beyond, um, you know, the way that we interact with our environment. And so because of that, excuse me, in order to address and to start to dismantle this system, we have to look at where capitalism touches every point of our lives. So for example, defunding and abolishing the police, abolishing ICE, abolishing the prison, the prison industrial complex in general, abolishing uh, child protective services. Those are carceral institutions that disproportionately affect indigenous people and black people in America, especially, but also in Canada, 
something not, not a lot of people from the United States may be aware of, or even in Canada. Um, so abolishing these systems is the first step in re-empowering community members so they are free to preserve their lands in a way that has always been done by their community. Mm. Um, another thing, so, you know, in your community, the average, you know, the average American, something that you could do in your community is support community efforts to defund and abolish these institutions. Um, another thing is ending illegal occupation everywhere from Hawaii to Palestine. Um, and so, you know, something that the average American can do, and this may be a bit of an unpopular opinion, but do not travel to Hawaii um, in support of Native Hawaiians' requests that tourism end in that territory. Um, Hawaii is an illegally occupied piece of land. The United States is there illegally. And the tourism industry has been super destructive. Um, and Kanaka Maoli people are asking that we do not go there because it's harming their lands. It's, it's being you know, detrimental to the territory. And so something that we can do is not travel there, um, which is hard because I know for Americans, it's a US state, it's easy to travel there. But that's something that we can do in solidarity with indigenous peoples. That's quite literally, like it, it takes zero effort not to do that, right? Yeah, it takes zero <laughs> um, effort to go anywhere else. It takes zero effort to go anywhere else, exactly. Um, and supporting, you know, uh, local Palestinian movements, anything to end the occupation of Palestine again, if you have movements in your area, support those. That is also supporting, you know, divestment everywhere. Um, something that is probably more close to home for people is supporting access to free and sustainable housing. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people are experiencing right now, that there's a housing crisis in many cities across the United States, across Canada, it's becoming a very serious problem. And so these housing creates uh, huge barriers that disproportionately affect our most vulnerable populations and prevent them from being active members in their community, empowering their communities. And accessible services are a benefit to everybody. It is in everyone's interest to support accessible housing, to support sustainable housing. If we all have somewhere to live, that is good for everybody. And so if you have tenants' rights organizations, sustainable housing co-ops, things like that, that you can support, that you can put your money towards, that is supporting Indigenous liberation, that is supporting ending climate change. Okay, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I feel like you're such a wealth of knowledge and I'm so grateful that you are so willing to share all of these like ways that we can get involved right now. Yeah, thank you. I feel like it's of course. also, um, it's so interesting because it's also like, it's a ripple effect where like, you know, someone's brain might go like, oh, I should support like a climate justice organization if I want to support climate change. But like, like you just said, it really reverberates to like so many other realms. Exactly. We feel the effects of climate change and of capitalism so deeply in every single aspect of our lives that it makes sense. You know, it, it may feel a bit overwhelming, but in that way, kind of any action that we're taking, we can realize is one step further to, you know, reversing the effects of climate change, essentially. Yeah. And you had mentioned um, before, like a lot of people in the U.S. don't know how this impacts Canada or Indigenous peoples in Canada. Do you 
could you speak to that a little more? Do you think that there is, I mean, I, I'm sure that there is because people in the U.S. aren't even listening to indigenous peoples in the U.S. Do you think that there is like a separation and that Americans are ignorant to realities that are occurring in Canada? And can you just speak to the comments that you made about, you know, how we m might not or definitely don't know kind of what's going on or how this impacts specifically indigenous people in Canada? Sure. Um, I think it's not necessarily the fault of Americans. I want to start by saying that um, as someone who's studied Canada for a very long time, um, the state has a way of presenting itself, the state of Canada, sorry, has a way <laughs> of presenting itself as being a benevolent uh, territory where only good things happen, such as, oh, all Canadians are polite. Um nothing bad ever happens here. Canadians don't fight in wars, um, you know, things like that. And all of that is, could not be further from the truth, I would say. Um, but it's, it's something that even Canadians struggle with to realize just how deep the insidiousness of the state goes, uh, because the government and kind of just the culture in general is so good at masking it. Um, and so I think a lot of the ignorance comes from the projection that, that Canada as a state and that, you know, white settler Canadians are complicit in project to the outside world. I know personally, when I traveled to Europe, um, you know, I had Europeans commenting like, oh, everyone in Canada is so nice. You must love it there. You must be so sweet. And obviously, I didn't want to get into this discussion with like some British people that I didn't know. But, you know, it kind of makes me think like, oh, this is the impression that people have of our country is that, you know, nothing bad ever happens here and that it's nice and perfect. But, you know, in some provinces in Canada, uh, Manitoba, for example, which is right beside Ontario, um, over 50% of children who are in care, like who are wards of the state, are Indigenous. And Indigenous children represent like 5% of children. So that's a huge discrepancy. People yeah. don't know that. People here don't know that. So <laughs> I don't blame Americans for being, you know, unaware of what's going on north of the border or even in the United States, because the United States has done a really good job of making it seem like there are no Indigenous people living on these lands anymore. I will say that <laughs> more so than in Canada, because we've had... Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recently, which released its final report in 2015, which kind of brought to the public consciousness, I think, the existence of Indigenous people. But there's been no such commission or project in the United States. So I think, I think it's easier to ignore Indigenous people in the United States than it is in Canada for that reason. Wow. So you might not have the answer to this, but it definitely sparked my my thought process here. What ways do you think other than, of course, like talking about it and educating ourselves on these issues? Can we be a little bit more informed as American people? Because as you just said, America's done a really good job of pretending like this doesn't exist in a way that Canada's maybe done a bit of a better job. What would you recommend, if anything? And of course, no pressure if you don't know. Um, that we could do other than just, you know, speaking up about it and like being vocal to kind of help ease that, that issue. Yeah. I mean, I think becoming educated yourself is, is the first step, right? And there are lots of 
resources in the United States by um, Indigenous people in the United States who I think are really great. So for example, um, there's an organization called the Red Nation. Um, They're a collective of scholars and students and community members, and they produce a variety of different media um, about Indigenous liberation and kind of the the radical like red power movement in the United States. Um, So they have a podcast called the Red Nation Podcast, which they do like, I think they do two episodes a week. And it's really, I find it really interesting. I listen to them all the time. Their episodes are phenomenal. They also have a book called The Red Deal, Indigenous Action to Save Our Earth, which actually was like a huge um, inspiration to me. And like I used it a ton in my thesis. And I love that it's from community. It's not like necessarily something that comes from a bunch of academics and is like super stuffy. It's very accessible. Um, this book is available from Common Notions Publishing. It's very low cost. I think you could probably get it at libraries now too. It's been out for about a year. Okay. Um, the other thing, the Women's Earth Alliance and Native Youth Sexual Health Network is a cross-border organization. So they work with people in the United States and in Canada, and they create a lot of different um, like reports and things like that about... Um, environmental issues and how they reflect as health issues a lot of the time for Indigenous people. Um, They have a toolkit called Violence on the Land, Violence on Our Bodies. That was the foundational piece for my thesis. It's absolutely phenomenal. And again, it's created by community members and people who are working on the front lines. So it's super accessible, very easy to read, has tons of pictures, um, lots of artwork, things like that. And it's just like an absolute, like, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> My God. Um, okay, I'm going to read that. It's really phenomenal. It's not super long. I think it's about 40 pages. Um, it's so well done. Um, and then a couple, like, authors that I would recommend um, if you're looking to read, like, books. Uh, Leanne Simpson is a phenomenal Anishinaabe writer from uh, Michisagi Anishinaabe, which is, like, the Kawarthas area in Ontario. Um, Naomi Klein is a phenomenal like environmentalist and writes a lot about how uh, environmental degradation affects Indigenous people and Black people disproportionately. Um, there's also an author named Ingrid Waldron who wrote a book called There's Something in the Water, which was actually turned into a documentary that Elliot Page did. No the way. documentary is phenomenal, but the book is also really great. It's about environmental racism in Nova Scotia, which is where Elliot Page is from. Um, so that's also a great read, great documentary as well, if that's more at your speed. But then I would say if you're genuinely looking to find ways to support your community where you live at home, because those I find are the, the efforts that are most meaningful. Okay. If you're in the United States, look to your nearest Native American cultural center. They're all over the country see if they have efforts that they need supported because those are where your efforts are going to go the farthest. Not when you're throwing money at some national organization, but when you're like supporting the people in your hometown. And if you're in Canada, look to your nearest friendship center, very similar type of organization, see what they need and support, you know, locally. That's where organizing happens. And that's where we really get somewhere in our efforts. I find. 
That's thank you so much for that. I'm literally gonna look into all of these documentaries, all of these books. You've been just so incredibly helpful, and I'm like so grateful for your time. But before I let you go, if you could summarize, you know, your climate driven call to action for anybody that has ears and is willing to listen, what would you say? I would say use the power and the privilege that you have to uplift the indigenous people, the indigenous organizers, the black organizers in your community and support the leadership that they have been working on for decades, for generations. Follow their lead because the thousands of years that they have caring for the environment, that's that's not gonna go to waste. They know how to do it. We need to follow their lead. Thank you so much. You have been so wonderful. I'm so excited to share this episode with everybody. Can you let us know where we could find you in case somebody, if you're comfortable, might want to message you and ask more questions or maybe email you if they have, you know, more questions and and want to hear more from you? Yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) I'm on TikTok at grandmother.am. I love it. I don't really do any of this stuff on TikTok, but I am am on there. Uh, You can DM me if you want to ask questions. Um, I'm also on Twitter. My name is Annie's Mac and Cheese. Amazing. Um, you can, again, it's a lot of like shit posting, but we love that. You know, my DMs are open. <laughs> we love that. We love it. Well, I'm sure you're going to get tons of DMs because I know I have more questions for you, and we'll definitely keep in touch. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you it was such a pleasure to be here. My gosh, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you so much.